from the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Everything I do, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hello, Ward. Good evening, Eric. It is evening. We don't typically do these this late, but uh, we were lucky enough to get our interview done last week with our very special guest that we will get to in a moment. And so we thought, let's just push the intro as late in the day on Monday, just in case some late breaking news came in and there's none. Not even a little bit. Not just nothing to talk about. <laughs> just two dudes sitting around with some microphones. Just two dudes sitting around with microphones who are powered by communitycars.com. Sponsor of the Pod Hoosier Hysterics. Communitycars.com. Illusion Engines talk with Warden Eric. Whoa, you really, it was like a mellow remix. It's the evening, man. I got some sausage in my belly, and we're oh, just hanging out. Thank God. I didn't know what was going on there. I ate sausage tonight, too. What kind? Of, I know it wasn't pork sausage. It might oh, beef, beef sausage. I had chicken sausage. Oh, chicken sausage is good. Put it on the grill. All right, listen, let's get into what is uh, going on. Just some... Uh, some loose, not loose ends, but just a potpourri of things happening. The spring football game came and went. Uh, oh, did well, it? You know what we should probably do? We should probably talk about community cars. <laughs> I mean, how many times do we have to do this before we actually know what the fuck we're doing? What's weird was that, like, we never forgot to talk about community cars ever until last week and then again this week. Yeah, it's we're setting a bad a bad precedent and a bad habit. Look, community cars, I do think they should go with my organic slogan, which is simply don't be a jackass, buy a car from communitycars.com. A hundred percent. Yeah, it gets I it mean gets right down to it. Yeah, and you are a jackass if you don't buy a car from them. Why? Because you're going to give your hard-earned money to somebody. So you want to give it to a stranger? You want to give it to a company that you don't know for certain supports Indiana University Athletics, supports NIL, does everything it can to support the community, provides over 300 jobs for, for people in and around Bloomington, Indiana, has been part of the Bloomington and Indiana University family for for you know 20 years or so no generations no i mean well it is generations it's mo it's one more than one generation so yeah you're right. it sounds grand it does sound grand so listen they just make everything easy it's the getting close to the summer spring is here you're going to be driving around southern indiana looking at beautiful beautiful flowers <laughs> do, you, do you think they have convertibles i do i think they have a convertible what, just one. Well, you you people better hurry because spring is a coming and you want that convertible. No, they All probably right. have access to 370 convertibles at the touch of a button. Get on to communitycars.com. I had a little, I think that was a little sausage in my throat. Yeah, get, on to, get on to communitycars.com and check them out. So spring football game came and went. 
I, you know, from the coverage, it seemed like both quarterbacks kind of didn't do great. I don't know. I mean, it's just like interception in the end zone. I don't know. Like he's not willing to name a starter, which look, I get it. I get the game, but if we had a stud quarterback, you wouldn't have to name the starter. You know what I mean? And yes, the fact that we're going into, you know, our second straight off season and, 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 you know, ultimately the season without knowing who the clear cut starter is, is not great. It's not great in a sport where quarterback means everything. It's just not great. The fact that you told me that there was a spring game is breaking news. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, that does not speak well of you, my friend. I, I have real trouble getting invested in football in the spring other than and look, I'm even checked out on the pre-draft post combine stuff because it's just this void of information right now it's all speculation everybody just trying to spin for a couple more weeks to get a few more reads so i'm i'm on a quasi sports hiatus right now except for portal news yeah well um i did see a video online today that made me so happy which was grace Berger working out with the indiana fever oh and, that. and doing that like i want to see yeah, like an intense, you know, coming off of pick, shooting a mid-range shot, sprinting right after the mid-range shot to the three-point line, drilling a three, then coming back in, shooting another mid-range shot. I loved it. And, you know, like no surprise, the first day that she's able to, Grace Berger is in the gym working her ass off because that's what Grace Berger does. So she's immediately our favorite WNBA player of all time. Oh, yeah, easily. It happened yeah. as soon as they called their name. Yeah, so I, I am excited to try to see a game or two. Um, I'd love to see a game or two in person. If we can swing that next year, we should try to do that. That'd be fun, see a, see a Grace game in Indianapolis. Yeah, I be, I'm not sure exactly how the season lines up, where it's at. When I, I believe it, it ends somewhere around the same time as the NBA does. Um, does I'm it? Just, I'm, maybe not. Well, I don't I, think they're playing right now, are they? But they have shorter season. I'm, Let's I'm, look it up on the on the Google box. I'm I'm selfishly interested because I'll be back at least twice this summer, once in June. And you know. May sixth to August fourteenth. Yeah. Was yeah. was in two thousand twenty two. Okay. So, so so it finishes what, like a month after? Uh well, man. I know the NBA finals are usually in June. I don't know. Yeah, so a couple months after. Oh, well, well, we're, you know what? We're going to learn a lot more about that WNBA now. That's for sure. That is for sure. So uh, before we get to the IU basketball portal news, we do that when we talk about <laughs> Indiana basketball, because I feel like when we get to this point, you should like tug on your ear and just let me set you up instead right. of you setting me up to set okay. you up. So go All ahead. Right, well, let's try that. Okay. And now we're going to get to the portion where everybody knows that we are brought to you by IU Ventures presents a segment without pretense. Who's your hoop live just for you? All right. The tugging of the ear worked. Yeah. Yep. We'll try yeah. that going forward. All right, so iuventures.com. Uh, they've been a great partner for us for the last 
five, six months or so. We've loved working with them, got to meet these guys in person, as well as several Zooms, and just love everything they're about. IUVentures.com. We've been telling you about them for many months now. Uh, they are the arm of Indiana University that actually writes checks to entrepreneurs that have, you know, Indiana University DNA in them, whether it's an IU staff, alumni, uh, faculty, or student that they support companies where the CEOs have created something. There's a piece of intellectual property. Look, Ward, I'm just trying to get through this, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm that's, struggling. That's, I'm tired. I've been up what, since 5.15 a.m. And I don't what, need your <laughs> smug smirking at me while I'm trying. It's really hard to get through the business that we got to get through. <laughs> You're doing great, buddy. Anyway, IUVentures.com is the shark tank of Indiana University. Whether you want to be an investor to invest in one of these businesses for hopefully a nice return on your investment, whether you have an investment. <laughs> 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 it's harder not to laugh when you're not supposed to laugh. You're doing great, buddy. Uh, <laughs> iuventures.com free email newsletter sign up right now so you can find out about all the great businesses and entrepreneurs that they are supporting and that you can invest in iuventures.com now let's talk about the portal i was just going to add a tag to iuventures.com just finish it again iuventures.com making the world a better place <laughs> that, that was not worth it. That, that was not worth the repeat. That was not worth the repeat at all. All right, let's get into the portal. There is very little news. So I mean, there is news. just very little news. Chris Ledlam, who is the last person that uh, visited Indiana University that we are focused on right now, he did visit Tennessee over the weekend and then finished the weekend into today, Monday, with St. John's and that skeletal looking son of a bitch, Rick Pitino. Uh, I just, there's not a lot of information coming out of this camp. I mean, Ledlam's camp has been very quiet from the beginning of his process. And, you know, the word is that we're going to hear something this week, that this thing should play out this week. The word was we were the leader going into the Tennessee visit. But, and but, we don't really know. But, if he likes sleaze bags, we're in real trouble because he's got two great sleaze bags to pick from. Wow, you're gonna throw Rick Barnes in the sleaze bag category with Rick Patino? You know, in my mind, it was Bruce Pearl the whole time. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I got nothing against Rick Barnes. That guy's well, no, fine. no, no. We do have some—not something against him, but we know he's a cheater. Marco Killingsworth told us that. True, true. Right? So I, I stand by my prior comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though you thought it was Bruce Pearl. <laughs> yeah, I just saw Bruce Pearl down there in Knoxville the whole time. Yeah, well, it's not. <laughs> He's coaching Auburn. Yeah, yeah, it's all coming to me now. <laughs> when, when I worked at um, WWE, I remember we were in Manchester, England, the night of the 2012 election, presidential election. Okay. And we finished a show. And then the guy who was the head writer who worked for me there, we drove together 
to an air to the airport, I think in Birmingham, maybe I'm, I might be screwing up whether it was Birmingham to Manchester, Manchester, to Birmingham, doesn't matter. The two of us went there to catch a flight the next morning. And there was only one hotel room. We had to share the hotel room, but we were obsessed with the election and we were dying to know what was happening. And we were on a different time zone, you know, so we had to stay up so late to like watch it. And I just kept saying things with real confidence. And, and almost every time I said it on the news that we were watching, it was just proven wrong over and over again. Like I was diametrically opposed uh, to every correct point that was going on, you know, like I was trying to call polls and well, you know, these voters vote late. And then certain of somebody would just come on. Well, you know, those voters vote early. And that's why. And we we called it that I had a news service called Pankowski News Network, PNN. Mm. And we just kept coming up with slogans like PNN. It won't be right, but it will be fast. You PNN, know, PNN. Uh, always confident, sometimes wrong. Often wrong, never in doubt. <laughs> Often wrong, never in doubt. But now I feel like our Hoosier Hysterics news feed, HHN, HHN has become, you know, HHN, where Bruce Pearl is still coaching Tennessee. <laughs> he was there at one point, right? Yes, I had to... correct. Okay. Cool, correct. cool, 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 cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, it's all about Ledlam right now. I, I will tell you this. They really want this kid. I mean, they really want him, I would say, uh, maybe even a higher priority than anybody else that they've had in the transfer portal that they've gone after. This kid's got a lot of intangibles that I think this staff feels like they are missing in a major way when it comes to leadership and communication and just knowing where to be on the court and like a quarterback of the defense and a guy who can get some points in a variety of different ways. They don't really have that right now. You know, with Malik renew, we know how he gets his points, but that's how he gets his points with Xavier. If he gets the waiver, you kind of know what you, where you get, you know, he's a perimeter player and can drive. They signed Khalil Ware. we don't really know what, where, where we're going to get consistent points out of him. Um, you want a Harvard guy out on the court who's going to be able to like figure out what they want on both ends in like half a practice and step into, you know, a Miller cop type role, right? No, that's exactly it. I think that that's exactly it. You hit the nail on the head that Miller cop offered a lot to this team, by the way of leadership and communication talking you, one of the things you hear the most from coaches every coach is how important talking on the court is. I mean, Archie used to talk about this too. And would talk about how quiet our teams were that, you know, we had guys like Rob Finnessy and Romeo Langford and a bunch of guys who were pretty quiet, even race Thompson early on. And that really hurts your team. You need vocal guys. You need guys communicating. And I think with Ledlam, they think that that is that guy. And that's what Miller cop was and not having that, to rely on is scary, I think, uh, going forward for this you, team this season. You know what else is scary is uh, that we lost, I think I read, 63 uh, of our points per game. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and, and to me, it's like, okay, we're, we're looking pretty good down low already. And if we get him, you know, he's three-ish, four-ish. 
But man, you know, the two, three area, it's like, okay, obviously CJ's going to have a real opportunity here. Um, but like you keep hearing about in modern basketball, how important, you know, the threes are. And it's just, it's, I guess, a little disturbing that there's not a prominent three anywhere on our radar. Yeah, I, I mean, I would go a step further, and I don't want to go too far down this road, but I would just go a step further and say we shouldn't be in this position in year three of, of this staff. I mean, we, we, we have not either developed well enough, recruited well enough, planned well enough, that in year three, the biggest component of winning modern basketball, we are looking around like, what are we going to do here? Yeah. And and that that's scary. I mean, that is scary moving forward. It's why this portal season has been so crucial to. And look, I also think you look at this is not building for the future. Like, that's not what's happening right now. This is trying to make the tournament next year, period. Khalil Ware, everybody assumes is a one year player. That's it. He was supposed to be a one and done at Oregon. You know, and it didn't work out that way, but he does not want to stay in college. He wants to go to the NBA. Okay. Chris Ledlam is a one-year guy. Yeah, That's it. He's got mm -hmm. one year left. You know, I mean, Peyton Sparks is a backup for a couple of years. That's fine. But as far as, you know, your primetime guys, you've got Xavier Johnson. If he gets it, has one year left. You have Khalil Ware, who wants one year. You have Chris Ledlam, who's a one-year guy. Like, there, this, this is, this is patching up holes in the ship. It's and, reloading. And really it's just reloading. But then we'll have to reload again the year after that. Yeah. Well, that and that's. Do you want to be on this carousel? You know, like it is tough. It's it's tough. You and I. Well, you and I, I talked mean, about how exciting the portal season is. Yeah. A week a week ago, it sure <laughs> seems to have lost some of the excitement over the last seven days. And look, look, more guys are going to enter. They're still entering now. You're going to have some twenty three commits decommit. Um, you could potentially have people reclassify, but this is I think where we've Coach, learned our lesson there. Yeah, this is where Coach Woodson and staff. <clears throat> And it's all going to come from Coach Woodson. It's like, how, how do you want to do this going forward? Because, you know, you're getting a real good taste of what it's like to kind of need to come up with a, at least a half whole new team or, or replace most of your scoring virtually overnight. And, you know, Woody doing really well in the short recruitments. Okay. He needs to close on a couple more here for us to feel good going into the fall. But if he's like, yeah, I kind of like it this way, and I'm good at getting guys to play together who haven't really played together before, we'll we'll definitely find that out this coming year. Just inserting where in there, and we'll see who else. Ledlam, hopefully, maybe one or two more. Peyton, obviously. Um, so so it's like, yeah, all right, we'll 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 find out what his preference is, and if once the result on the court starts coming in next year, is it like, okay, let's let's get more invested back in the long term high school recruitments, or no, I'm cool with this. Let's just let's just see what's in the fridge come March and see what we need to go out to the grocery store and get for the next meal. Yeah, I I hope that's not where we go as the program. I mean, it's just so. 
the margin for error just seems so slim if there is any at all. I mean, when you're at Illinois, yes, exactly. And when you're reloading with the number of pieces that we need to reload with, I mean, like they, you got to hit on almost all of them. I mean, you got to hit on a five, you got to hit on a three, you got to hit on a two, like you, and, and everybody else is going after those guys also. Yep. You know, and, and your evaluation has to be right. And the kid's head has to be right. And they have to be team first. You know, Yah talked to us about this. Like you, you, you think you're, you know, the approach is right. We know that Yah and Kenya and Woody and Walsh, we know that their mindset is right as far as what they need. But in a short recruitment, I mean, that Khalil Ware recruitment was like 10 days. Yeah. You know, can you really be sure after 10 days that it's right? Can you really be sure after four weeks? And by the way, you can't really be sure after a year either. So I, I understand, but it is, you learn more, you get more information, you get to know somebody more reloading this way scares me. It's also just not what I want to root for. Truthfully. I, well, I want to and, get to know guys and build with them and grow with them and see and, the team grow. And that's where I hope <clears throat> CJ, Caleb, um Gabe and um, Malik and of course Malik I just assume Malik is yeah. going to get <clears throat> excuse me sausage um 25 points a game Jakai I hope we get good rum from Jakai so when we're sitting here a year from now we feel like several of these younger guys um showed some strides and are ready to make the leap and that even though we're going to be losing potentially most of our starters again, that we're feeling confident about the guys who are already there and we don't need to supplement maybe as many starters. And and I don't want to keep going round and round about this because we could talk about it every week, but the struggle is that you're going out and getting Khalil Ware, right? You're going out and getting Chris Ledlam or trying to get Chris Ledlam. You're trying to get Dalton Connect to come to campus and, oh, and people, be a three. People are going to think that that was some sort of slip and that, yeah, like, well, we, <laughs> no, I mean, we, we don't know either. No. So you're trying to get those guys, which means the guys like Kayla Banks and CJ Gunn are not your primary option. Right. You're you're going out and getting these guys for one year. You better believe they're the primary option. Do guys like Caleb and CJ look around after the second year and go, shit, I did everything I was supposed to do. And I didn't get the playing time that I thought I was going to get. Tamar Bates, Jordan Geronimo, they take off like that is part of the that's the big risk. That is the big risk with the transfer portal, because Ward a year ago, we never would have thought that Tamar Bates would have transferred after this last year. We yeah. wouldn't have thought that. We wouldn't have thought Jordan Geronimo really would have transferred because we saw sparks from him, right? And he was getting more playing time. And Yeah, no. Uh, I, the, I do think you have to have trust in Coach Woodson that he's watching them in practice every day. And I don't care if you bring in somebody who's supposed to be the guy or you're developing somebody who's supposed to become the guy. It's like you see them going at it day in and day out in practice, and then whoever has earned that trust gets those minutes. And if by the end no of the doubt. year they have not impressed in the way they need to, then I think 
it, it ends up probably being a situation where if, if they're not confident that role is theirs next year, it's because they know they weren't showing it in practice or when they did get into games. And, yeah, and so you went, I, I hear your point. I hear your point. You're right. I do trust those coaches, our coaches, to make the determination on who is the better player right now. I have very little doubt that if they get Chris Ledlam, he will be a better player right now than Caleb Banks. Right. The problem is, does Caleb Banks have a higher ceiling in two years than Chris Ledlam does for one? Sure. And does, are you sacrificing that the next yes. two years for this one year? And then are you always on that carousel? Yeah. Where you can't really develop a guy. A guy's got to just be ready baked like Jalen Hood Shafino was right away, or you run the risk of losing guys. It's just a weird time in college basketball. But one thing I do know for sure is that for us to compete, whether it's in the transfer portal or with kids that are committing out of high school, we better have our NIL ducks in a row. Amen. And something special has been happening on line both on twitter and on pigs.com with our hhnil collective this started totally organically and grassroots where a pigster went on the message board and said hey let's do a portal push and a bunch of pigsters joined him and it was exclusive to pigs and that turned in to like seven eight thousand dollars in about a 24-hour period then that was picked up by another pigster who said you know what if we raise five grand i'll match it we ended up raising over $11,000 for that. And then on, put his $6,000, he did six instead of five. On top of that, we were at like $25,000, $30,000 in a 72-hour period. And then on the heels of that, another peakster came forward and said, I will match $100,000. $100,000 he will match up to till July 1st. Every contribution that is made right now on hhnil.com, go to hhnil.com, make a contribution to the main fund. It will be matched dollar for dollar up to $100,000. I don't have the official number because it changes on like an hourly basis, obviously, but we were close to like $45,000 within the first week of this thing. I mean, it. We are gonna, we're going to hit this this $100,000 mark, which means we earned $200,000, but we need everybody that listens to this podcast, everybody that follows us on Twitter, everybody that goes on Pigs, to please go to hhnil.com and understand that everything you give is matched dollar for dollar up to hundred grand until July 1st. So thank you to the Hoosier community for this. It's been amazing. Those kind of numbers and their impact on this program cannot be overstated. Those are very real numbers that obviously are no secret. And any player, their family, or their agents thinking about coming here see that going on. That alone is great. But then those dollars, every dollar, every penny ends up going to an IU basketball player, in some cases, a women's basketball player, or we have a separate thing but for let's football. Be clear, this, this matches for IU men's basketball. This is for men's yeah. only. So if you get in on this, it is going to go to one of the Indiana University men's basketball players for the 23-24 season. Or more and, than one. Or Did I say, did I make it singular? I thought you said it's going to one, but, but maybe I misheard. Sorry. I mean, look, the way we're going tonight, you probably misheard and I said it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> 
But it's, I mean, that is a significant amount of money that makes, and and I want to hit this real quick, a real difference in the lives of not just these players, but their families. There are some beautiful stories and interactions we've had with players' families where this is like this really changes lives in a very, very positive way. So, yes, our basketball team will be better because of the generosity and support of of everybody involved with this push, but it will straight up make people's lives less stressful and more fun because of, of the money that's being put in. Absolutely. Amen. All right. Well, we've got a fun one today. Uh, We have talked, we have talked to former managers before we have talked to successful former managers before of the Indiana university program, but this guy is on top of the world recently and has been just raved about by everybody that we know that knows him. So uh, it did not disappoint at all. And hopefully, once you listen to this, you'll understand why I say, I really hope he gives us a call when he comes out to L.A. I, I was just thinking that, too. That should, like, that's in like a week or so. I yeah, want that to there's happen. There's virtually no chance that that will happen, right? Like, there's not. a lot. There's actually a lot of other people he should probably be hanging out with. Yeah, we may be the last people that he should hang out with if he comes out to L.A. Yeah. Yeah, but hey, I'm going to keep on hoping. But either way, he gave us this time, which was so generous when you know his time is so in demand. And I think you all will enjoy it every bit as much as we did. I think we really nailed this intro award. I mean, really, I think it was some of our best work. I thought we came out kind of weak and then it got worse and then it leveled off. And then it off. just kind of flatlined. It leveled off at bad. And yeah. Then, yeah. I, I actually the thought. End. I thought my best moment was right at the end. I'm like, oh, we could actually go into the here comes our guest off of something I said. But then you've added this sort of postscript commentary about how bad it all was. Why don't you just replay the moment? What I think is your best moment where you thought that Bruce Pearl was the head coach of Tennessee. All right. I'll make a note to do that. <laughs> wow. You're going to throw Rick Barnes in the sleazebag category with Rick Patino. You know, in my mind, it was Bruce Pearl the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes a guest. Here comes a guest. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. We have someone very special here today. Once a Hoosier, always a Hoosier. We all spent a lot of time this NCAA tournament watching this man soar to new heights with such Hoosier pride. But Eric's going to give us the specifics, so you might all want to settle in for a bit. This is going to take a while. Eric, who do we have here today? Hailing from Bloomfield, Indiana, where he is an alumnus of Eastern Green High School, We are talking to a gentleman who has been the head coach of Florida Atlantic for the last five seasons. He has not had a losing season at Florida Atlantic, the first five-year stretch of winning records ever at Florida Atlantic. The 2022-23 Owls have the most wins in school history. He went 35-4, and the most conference wins in school and and Conference USA wins history, the longest winning streak in school history, the third longest winning streak in Conference USA history. We are talking to a gentleman, of course, who went to the Final Four this year. 
unprecedented success. We are talking to the NABC All-District 17 Coach of the Year. We are talking to the Conference USA Coach of the Year. We are talking to the all-time leader in coaching wins at Florida Atlantic, even though he's only been there five years. And we are, of course, talking to the CBS Sports National Coach of the Year. But more importantly than all that, we're talking to a guy who lived at Wright Quad, the Beta House on 10th Street, and a house on First and Fess. He was a manager for Bob Knight in the Indiana University Hoosiers from 96 to 2000. He came back to Indiana as a video coordinator and in that and on the staff of Mike Davis. A couple years later, we are talking to what is becoming the legend of Dusty May. And I... Uh... Intramural basketball champion at IU as well. We we closed it off at Assembly Hall. That's probably the the greatest honor. The Beta <laughs> eighteen. That that is a Hoosier right there. All those accomplishments, the hell with them. I won the intramural basketball at IU. That is awesome. That is really awesome. Well, if you guys need a part time job, I need a publicist, a hype man, and an agent. So I think you guys you guys might be qualified. Yeah, maybe the publicist, but after you signed a 10-year deal, I'm not sure you need an agent right now. So we don't need to get into that right now. But Dusty, I, I, we're so happy to have you on the show. And I want to start off by something I asked you on text, which is, has it sunk in yet that you went to the Final Four this year? Absolutely not. Everything feels 100% normal except the pictures and the, you know, things like that, that never happened before. So um, I think for most coaches, that's probably a, a common thing for us down here. We've kind of been uh, under the radar anonymous or whatever. So that's been the biggest difference, but no, it, it hasn't sunk in at all. Uh, the magnitude of, of what our guys and our program was able to do uh, with that run. Well, I know you're uh, probably already looking ahead. What's going on in the portal uh, next season, big facilities upgrades going on with the windfall that such a tournament has. But I do wonder, like, you know, you're driving to the gym or back home or you're in between meetings. Do, do you just are there moments from the tournament, from the run that happen that just just kind of come in and what maybe a couple of those are where you're like, oh, yeah, that did happen. It's more when I'm, you know, I'm talking to Joe Pasternak and he'll call and he'll say, do you realize you just coached in the final four? Like this legendary coach, this legendary coach, this legendary coach, they're, they're obsessed with it and they, they haven't been able to sniff it. And I said, you know, it's, there's so many things, there's the, the, the runs, the staying healthy, the, so no, it, it's been more stuff like that. And then we laugh about it for 10 seconds and then, and then we move on. I think probably in a couple of years or a couple of months when you're watching ESPN classics or one of those channels and it comes on, or, or you know, one year from today, they'll show the, the, the highlights. And, and I think that's when it'll really resonate. Uh, but right now it's still, it, you know, we're like you said, there, there's transfer portal, there's recruiting, there's planning your spring, there's off season workouts. So you just, you, you stay in the day-to-day -day routine that you had if you would have got beat three weeks ago. Uh, well, I'm sorry to go ahead. Oh, I, I just, I'm just so wildly curious how different is it now recruiting players than it was even, you know, a month ago or for next or for last season or when you first showed up? I mean, are you already seeing the fruits of a Final Four run when you're talking to players you want to get to come there? A hundred percent. For example, some guys that we tried to get um, involved with out of high school or maybe in the portal now after one year and they take our call and tell us how excited they are to be recruited by us now. 
I don't know if it translates as much when it comes to finalize, you know, finishing the the, the recruitment or, or getting it done, but we can definitely get involved in a lot with a lot more players and a, and a lot more higher profile guys. And that's going to be our biggest challenge. We met this morning. We talked about it, us not over-evaluating and getting away from what made us, us thinking we have to get longer or taller or whatever, and just staying with what's made us successful. And if we do that, because I think that's what happens a lot of times you, you have some success that's not, uh, year in year out and you feel like you've got to get a higher level talent as opposed to doing what got you to that point so we're kind of at that crossroads right now fortunately we only have one spot uh, we're being very very selective with it and then uh, we'll probably have a big class next year so I hate to hit you with a hard question right off the bat but I'm going to the other thing that typically happens a lot with success in the tournament from a smaller school or a lesser known school is that that coach runs to the bigger job as quickly as they can. They leverage that success. And and I get it. I mean, you never know when that success is coming again. I mean, you know, getting there is hard and it's a bucket goes this way or that way. And look, you should have been in the national championship game if it weren't for one bucket, you know, going a certain way. What was it that made you not run for those? I'm sure you got phone calls or your agent got phone calls. He, he doesn't have an agent. <laughs> unless we sign them. I have a million agents call. <laughs> right, exactly. The well, agents but, recruit harder than co coaches do. I'm impressed with those guys. They're 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 uh, they're they're good. But there you go. Like, and I'm sure they are dangling in front of you. Here's what I can get you. Here's the step up in pay that we can get you. Here's the step up in facility and exposure. What was it that that made you commit to Florida Atlantic? A lot of things. First and foremost, our players and staff absolutely love coming to work every day, working with these guys and their turn, you know, as of now, no one on our roster is winning the portal. They all act like they're not going anywhere near the portal. Wow. And so when you have a group that's that loyal to us, to the university, to each other, it would be very difficult for me to, to, I guess, go against what we're preaching every day. If Look, our, all of our values are different. We're all motivated by different things. I'm not motivated by money. So turning down the money wasn't, is never going to be that difficult if it's just for money. Uh, it's the people, it's the relationships. And even when I was an assistant coach at Florida, I didn't really want to take this job. I just kind of came to take a look at it and fell in love with the place and the people. And at that point, I, I, I told people, I said, look, I know this. I mean, assistants, you may get one shot ever. You may not get another opportunity. And I said, I'm okay with that. I love being an assistant coach here. I love what I'm doing every day. I love the relationship piece as an assistant. I enjoy every part of it. So if I don't get another opportunity, I'm okay with that as well. And it was kind of like that where people said, you know, you may not ever get another opportunity, this or that. And I said, that's, I'm fine with that. Like I could stay here and do what I'm doing right now forever, as long as we have the quality people in our program and we have what we need to be successful. So uh, all that rolled into one and then you're playing longer. And I didn't want to be distracted with even entertaining conversations and that type of stuff, because once again, if we preach staying focused in the moment to our guys and we're out interviewing for jobs during that process, I just, it's, it's hard for me to be that, that, uh, two-faced, that two-faced. Two -faced. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of a nicer word to say it, but just hypocritical. I tried not to be hypocritical, try to, to hypocritical, try to put our guys in compromising positions and just try to be true to, to my word and who I am. So it was nothing more than that. Love it. Well, well, and you, you've obviously built something very special. It didn't happen overnight, but considering, you know, FAU is a pretty new program overall and, and had only been to the tournament once prior to you getting there. What is your philosophy on building a program? And in that, you can talk about 
what you want to see on the court from your teams too. This is like, hey, this is the kind of style I like to play on both ends. But even bigger picture, like what was it when you're like, this is my first program and here's how I'm going to build it. What what are your guideposts? Well, and from day one, I wanted to step into the situation like Chris Holtman did at Ohio State and keep the team and do the best we could with that group. And several guys eliminated themselves with off-court issues and things like that. So we fell into a situation where we had 10 scholarships in year one, open scholarships, and we had seven official visits left, and we had no recruiting days. They had burned all the recruiting days. And so we had to rely on film, relationships. And the, the one thing that, that I thought was very important coming here was we needed to earn respect first and foremost. We couldn't be bad in year one. Now, we didn't have to be great. We didn't have to be really good, but we had to earn some respect and then after we earn some respect, then we can become good. And so we actually had a really good team in year one. I think we started out nine and three. We beat Illinois. We beat uh, UCF's best team with Taco Fall. And then we had a rash of injuries. And then because we had brought in some grad transfers and whatnot, we lost some guys. So we actually probably stepped down in talent from, in, from year one to year two. And in year one, I think we had a 20 to 25 win team if we stayed healthy. But because we lose three starters to injuries, we end up winning 17 games, which was still a success, relative, relatively speaking. And then after that, it was let's get as many six, five versatile guys that can switch, shoot threes, put it on the floor as we can get. And uh, we tried to do that every year. We had the uh, Keenan Blackshear. We felt like he was going to be an all league guy. And then he leaves to go to Nevada. So at that point, we said, look. With the way the climate is now, we might lose guys to the transfer portal. What we can't do is work really, really hard, develop them, and lose them before they're all-league players. If they become all-league players and they want to leave, then that's on them. But we can't lose all-league guys before they're all-league guys. We have to really pour and invest into these players. And we brought in a really special class during COVID. We got lucky. One player went into the portal, and we replaced him with Elijah Martin the next day. And we had evaluated John L. Davis. We have a group that was really talented. They were really close but they also had the tangibles and intangibles to be really good. And, and so we've kind of built around those guys and added some uh, very pivotal pieces, BJ Greenlee and Vlad Golden. But it started with that group of four guys that have been together for three years. One, one quick follow-up. Is it true in that first recruiting class where you had to get 10 guys, you got the ball signed without showing them the facilities? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, they saw some of the facilities, so I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown. So basically, when you when you come onto our campus, I mean, we've never had anyone pull on and say, wow, this is FAU. I mean, it's, it looks like a five-star resort. It's a place you'd want a vacation. And so, but our, our basketball arena wasn't that, and it was, it was much further behind five years ago. So we would have the doors propped open. We would have them pull in front of the arena, and we'd walk them straight onto the court, past the offices, past everything else. And as we're walking them, we're talking, so we're keeping them occupied. We had a seat set up on, on the court and we would sit them down. And usually if, if you're recruiting a player that loves ball, he's going to grab a ball with the ball rack and dribble and fiddle around with it. And then you're talking to the parents, the pleasantries, how was your flight? How was travel? Whatnot. And then we say, you know what, let's go see campus. And so we'd have the golf cart. And then once, then we go to campus, we go up in the football suites or the top of the dorms where you can see the Atlantic ocean and you can see Fort Lauderdale. And then we take them through campus. And then we say, you know what, let's go back to the Boca resort. Let's you guys relax. And then we'll have dinner. <laughs> and so we, we just kept them occupied. I don't want to say we hit anything or we didn't show them. We just, what do you do? You accentuate your positives, right? Whatever your positives accentuate it's your sales. positives. Yeah, I love it. Sales. So why, why would we show them the things that aren't our strengths? And so 
we, we were very, very successful uh, closing deals with, with all that being said. And we did have players get here, um, get dropped off for school in the summer and say, hey, by the way, where's the locker room? I've never seen it. Where's the weight room? I've never seen it. Where's the That's training great. room? I've never seen it. So uh, it, things have improved a lot since then. We still have a ways to go. But yeah, that those those stories are true. Dusty, there's no secret that the transfer portal has changed a lot of how coaches approach recruiting. And part and parcel to the transfer portal is NIL. Uh, and and we've seen, you know, story after story about kids, especially leaving mid-majors and smaller schools to go bigger in large part because they know they can get paid at those at those places because there's just more resources. How have you at Florida Atlantic um, in your capacity? And obviously there's certain rules and stuff you can and can't do. But how have you embraced NIL in your program and how has the alumni base or the supporters of Florida Atlantic embraced NIL? Well, up until recently, I couldn't have anything to do with NIL. I couldn't really talk about it. It was it was true NIL. We didn't have a collective. And then I, I, our state law changed maybe three or four weeks ago where we can assist in, in NIL. So now when, when you're at a local business or I know uh, a restaurant owner, he says, hey, coach, what, how can we help? Say, man, it'd be really nice if our players could be successful in the NIL space. And then because of our run, we've been able to I guess uh, th this was our moment, and and Boca is a is a very nice area to be good at something, and and <laughs> you know, just put it the, the, the right way. There's a lot of people that can help, and but it's not a place where these people can't went to school here. They don't have a connection other than mm. they live here, and then the mm. people part where you know it's not a land grant school. It's been around 150 years, and there's 40,000 students every year. So all these people, we've just tried to basically make it their team. And, and for six months out of the year, they're snowbirds or whatever. This is the school you wrote for. And because of the magnitude of our guys' success, NIL has been very, it's it's looking very, very promising, especially for our level. And, uh, you know, it, it, but our guys basically stayed with blind faith with nothing, with the anticipation that they would be able to generate, um, I, I guess, a lot of interest in NIL space. That's great. I I think it really speaks to you and your program and what you've built that there, there was talk of, of players being poached during your to tournament run. Is that true? That, that like, while you guys were on the run, you were, you were hearing whispers of, of guys being poached. Well, I, I don't want to say it was, it wasn't whispers and, and I didn't say poached. <laughs> I said, there's third parties on every roster in all of college basketball. My point was, this isn't a big deal. This is a non-conversation. This is what our job is. And then the players decide what's best for them. And, and, and you look at all these high major rosters, there's guys from the mid-major that went and did really well in NIL space and they did really well basketball wise, but there's also a lot of stories where they went there and they disappeared poof into nowhere. And so our players know the risk. They know what they have here. They know who they're playing with. They know how we coach and so then it's it's about going into the unknown versus the known. And and we we don't hide anything. We we know what other players in our league have left to get in an IL space. We know what their numbers are, and we openly talk about it. This is what he got. This is what he was promised. This is all those things. It's it's just we're completely transparent with everything. And yes, there were people reaching out saying, if you want to go to this school, I can get this done for you. If you want to go to this school, I can get this done for you. And usually as Fran McCaffrey said yesterday, it's it's agents, NIL agents or, or middlemen, because they're going to get a cut. They're going to get a piece of that. And so it's it's America. It's business. The middleman is going to get a percentage of it if they can persuade you to go here instead of staying here. So it's it's part of it. I don't know what the solution is, but I'm not complaining about it. I'm not moaning. I know you're not. This, yeah. Ever happens, I, I'm going to try to do my best to adjust. And, and I, I don't know. If, 
I don't think you'll take the bait on this one, but like I listened to the France stuff and look, it's no secret. Ward and I are heavy in the NIL space. We've started yeah. a collective at Indiana and we make deals with players. So we're, you guys we're, work exclusively with, with, with Indiana. Or... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, coach. <laughs> I'm just a joke. I'm just a joke. <laughs> um, but I, I, I thought that his comments were a little disingenuous because let's, let's just not kid ourselves. There's also in the history of college basketball, plenty of coaches who, they're talking to their agents about other jobs that might open up before the season ends. And they jump the second they can with no penalty. And in many cases, or if there's a buyout, the new school pays them more money on top of their contract. And then they write that check back to the school. So I, I just think it's a little disingenuous to like, Oh, it's happening now for players. So you don't like it, Fran. I get it. it it's weird, but it's not like it hasn't been happening in a similar way with coaches. And True, and I saw a 10 sound bite. And I think his point was, and I'll give you a great example. Before the NIL space and all this came about, when I was at Florida, there was a, a, a guy that I know called and said, hey, would you be interested in this player? And I said, is he in the portal? And he said, no. So he's doing his pre-portal work. I mean, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And he said, uh, I said, well, first of all, it's really, really hard to get into Florida for grad school. So if he's even going to consider going in the portal and coming here, he has to be an elite student anyway. So this is a non-starter at that time. We could probably recruit two grad transfers from the entire country because that that was a dynamic then. And then several months later, I bump into the coach of the school that that player was leaving, and he makes a comment about this school and this school poaching his player. And I said, oh, time out, time out. I was actually on that staff, and we received a call from a middleman asking us if we would be interested. And my response was, if he's in the portal, then we could talk. He's not in the portal. We're not doing that, period. And, and, and that was the last conversation I had with him. I said, so his side of the story was that these two schools were trying to poach his player. My version was that they reached out to us. And I said, that is he in the, my first question was, is he in the portal? And he said, no. And I said, well, we can't really, we can't talk about this if he's not in the portal. But just so you know, it's really, really difficult to get in grad school here anyway. So this is probably a non-starter. And so I think that was Fran's point that the high majors are going to get this bad rap that they're poaching from mids and they're poaching from lows. And in reality, it's probably 50-50 where there's someone working on behalf of the, the lows and mids and engaging interest at the high major, and then they, they meet in the middle. So I, that's the way I that's the way I took out of it. I, I don't follow him. I don't, you know, I just saw a 10-second clip, and that, yeah, that was my no, intro. That's, that's fair. Um, I only brought it up to say it's such a testament to what you've built and who you are um, that all those guys want to come back, despite yeah. – However, uh, the money and the offers are swirling around. Uh, I, I think we should get back to a second for the run and you being a Hoosier and all of us watching and rooting, um, especially as our Hoosiers went out, we were all in for the Owls. Were you just hearing constantly from your fellow managers, players, other IU folks during that run? Assuming the answer is yes. Are there a couple fun messages, funny, meaningful texts, phone calls you got from fellow Hoosiers? Well, the, the fellow Hoosiers, just about everyone reached out. And I'm on a manager thread with probably 50 former managers. And, wow. and I keep in contact with most of the players from my era, especially the ones that are still in basketball. So those were actually pretty normal. Uh, we had a lot of managers join us in New York that the came to watch. In Ohio, there was probably everyone, I, majority of the managers that I worked with we're in, and we're in Columbus to watch us because it was driving distance. And then there's a couple that that uh, Dan Block, for example, he he probably comes to five, 10 or 15 of our games every year. 
because he still loves ball and he and I are really close friends and, and, and it, you know, so it's, it's still fun for both of us. So, you know, the, the, the whole IU piece was, it was all the same people that I talked to. I talked to Don Fisher all the time, you know, mm. Scott Dolson was a former manager before me. He texts several times. So Timmy Garl, I mean, he, he texts throughout the years and he would, he would quote coach Knight. So all those are really cool to me because when I hear from anyone affiliated to, to IU, I smile and, and have good thoughts and memories. So um, those weren't the, 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 you know, those were the normal ones that they kind of were throughout the season. Uh, and let's also not forget that you have another direct connection to Indiana besides your own, which is your assistant coach, who is Tom <laughs> Abernathy's son, is on your yeah. staff, connected to the greatest team in the history of Indiana basketball. Um, and and watch, we've become pretty close with his dad, who who allows us to call him Aber as the nickname. And seeing how proud he was and checking in with him throughout. And he told us even a couple of years ago, when we got to know him about his son working for you and down at Florida Atlantic and really trying to build something. How cool is it to have Aber's son on your staff? Who's also got this great connection to Indiana. Well, it's, it's just cool because he's a great coach. He's a great person. And he has the Midwestern Hoosier values that, that, that I really appreciate. So, and then having, uh, we call him big Tom, we have him big Tom down. We can always ask him, Hey, how did coach Knight handle this situation during the, and so he's had a lot of really good nuggets for us. And he's spoken to our team before he's just got a really neat perspective. And then he's brought a lot of the former Hoosiers around. He brought Jim Cruz to our games, either in Ohio or New York. I can't remember. He's his neighbor. So he's brought several people affiliated with the program to ours. And, and, and that's been pretty cool as well, but it's been, you know, a lot of people from Indiana have retired within a couple hours. So my first grade teacher uh, has dropped in on us several times. Lynn Hauser, who wrote for the, the Herald times paper for years, sure. he comes to the majority of our games he's retired down here so it's been cool this run just it's it's brought so many people from your past together that's that's been the the most rewarding part well let's talk about the past and you brought up your first grade teacher now going to eastern green county i believe in first grade you you met your ultimate teammate is that when you met your wife anna it's true. Yeah. She was my girlfriend on and off through junior, uh, through elementary school, on and off through junior high, and then mostly all through high school. And then we were mature enough whenever we graduated. I went to Oakland City University. It was Division Two at the time to play ball and run cross country. And she went to Purdue. At that time, we kind of said, let's just see what happens. It wasn't as if we were going to still be high school sweethearts trying to do a, a five a distance relationship. So Ended up, we were off and on all through college. And then when she finished at IU School of Medicine in Indianapolis, I was still in Bloomington. And then she went to Texas to do her clinicals. And then I moved to LA. And then it was it was kind of one of those things where we were both ready for the next step. And she moved to LA with me. And if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have been able to coach. And uh, she supported me for a number of years. And, and that's why I was able to to survive in, in this business as I was working my way up. That's That's awesome. So did you find your future wife first or did you find your love of basketball first growing up in Southern Indiana? Which one came first? Oh, and what man. do you remember? What do you remember? I'm about not growing going up on air with that one. My wife still gives me a hard time. <laughs> she still says basketball comes first. So I'm the love of my, uh, the love of my life. First, second, third, this was way down the line. So. Okay. <laughs> so what was it like growing up as a Southern Indiana kid in, you know, we grew up around the same time, late seventies into the eighties. Bob Knight is at the peak of his powers, you know, as far as a, a icon in, in the sport. What do you remember about first falling in love with the game of basketball? Well, back then you had the games on ESPN and we didn't have cable in Green County at that time. I don't know when Green, Green County may not have cable to this day. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, people my mom worked 
worked with, she worked in Bloomington, they had satellite dishes, so they had cable. So we would go on Big Monday. The game started at 9.30 at that time. And I'd be out till midnight on a school night. Other than that, I couldn't stay up past nine o'clock. IU basketball games, and I tell people now, when when you scheduled your high school games, they schedule them around IU. When IU's schedule was announced, then they built their high school varsity games around IU every single year. So we never played on the same night. So it, I, I learned early on, it was like Sunday in church, you know, on Monday, on Wednesday, if I use playing, that's what we're doing. And so, you know, it, I remember the, the getting off the bus the year they lost to Cleveland State in the tournament and just being completely crushed. And even a reporter asked me about Coach Knight not liking the three-point shot and how how do you think he enjoys watching your team play? And I said, well, I remember the, the I think it was 87 team beating UNLV with Steve Alford's seven threes. I said, I thought he embraced it. No matter what he said, he embraced it as an advantage with all those shooters. I said, and that's actually when I fell in love with the three-point line because it was like, how can Indiana beat this UNLV team? Well, they could do it behind the three-point line. And so that was when, you know, I, I first became infatuated with shooting threes. And so, wow. uh, you know, yeah, we, we still try to shoot as many as we can. <laughs> was Alfred your guy growing up? Was he, was he like, who was, or did you have one? No, I loved Greg Graham. I love Calvert Chaney. Yes, I, I don't, yes. you know, for whatever reason, those, those are probably the two, my two favorite ever. Uh, Alan Henderson was a, was a favorite uh, for a number of years. Those are probably my three all-time favorite Hoosiers that, that, you know, when I was growing up, I would try to, uh, you know, be like them. When I was a little kid at the Boys and Girls Club and, and my brother remind, reminded me of this during this run, that Stu Robinson and Winston Morgan, he said, when you were a little boy, I don't know if you remember, but you would go to the Boys Club. My mom would drop us off at the Boys and Girls Club in Bloomington from nine to five with a sack lunch. And he said, everyone would go play pool or ping pong and you just, you'd be in the gym the entire time. And Winston Morgan and Stu Robinson used to volunteer their time at the Boys and Girls Club. And he said, I don't know if you remember how much they loved you and they worked with you all the time and you were always with those guys. And I'd forgotten that because I was so young. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. Can you talk just a little bit more about Greg Graham? Because Ward and I constantly talk about our favorite players of all time. Ward's all-time favorite is Calbert Chaney, of course. Yeah. I mean, how can he not be? <laughs> yeah. And and I, Calbert is everything to me. But I've always gone with Greg Graham. He's been my – I just loved his game. Uh, and I kind of loved that he wasn't Calbert. Like, he wasn't getting the acclaim, but holy hell was he good. What did you love about Greg Graham's game specifically? I don't know why he was that long athlete. And when you're not a long athlete, you, <laughs> you appreciate what those guys are. And so, and, and then even later on, AJ Guyton, man, I love, I say this all the time. If AJ Guyton grew up in today's climate with the dribble, I mean, he was like Iverson as far as crossing over, shooting off the bounce. He could shoot threes. I mean, he was like a modern day guard in a different era. And Greg Graham was kind of like that, where he could go create at the end of a shot clock. He could play off the motion. He just was a much more versatile of a player. So I, I think even young, I appreciated what he could do as far as creating for himself and also playing really good team basketball. It is interesting that we are all basically the same age here. And I remember Keith Smart shot. I do. I remember like Uwe Blob is like the first player I really remember being like, huh, this is a thing, Indiana basketball. But just being at that age of like 11, 12, 13, 14, it seems like that's when you really get solidified with who your all-time favorites are. And we were just so lucky to be in that time and place with those squads. I I wonder when did you start thinking about hey maybe there despite not being a long athletic basketball player I could maybe get involved with that program. 
Well, I was about the size I was as a senior in eighth grade. So I thought I was going to grow. The males in my family were taller. So I thought I was going to be a much better player than I ended up being. And so it was probably my junior year. And I, I'd done some work for, uh, I'd always worked for this guy named Dave Rutherford that, that worked for my mom's company. And he was friends with Dr. Rink from the Navy. Hmm. And so I got to know Dr. Rink and had done some work for him. Not, not regular, but had gotten to know him a little bit. And he, and he knew I wanted to coach and Dave was kind of my mentor. So he was like, Hey, if you want to coach, this is the best thing for you. You need to come and work for coach Knight." So even when I had dreams of playing low major or good division two, or whatever case he was putting that in my head, basically. And he probably doesn't even remember this. He also steered me in the right direction when I was back at Indiana and it's, and I don't want to go on too many tangents, but I was getting into real estate. I'd bought a rental property. It was doing well. Then I bought another rental property in, in Bloomington with my father-in-law, just kind of on chance. And it's a whole long story. And I was considering trying to buy an apartment complex and Dr. Ring pulled me aside and said, Hey, I, look, I appreciate what you're trying to do. This is great, but you're a good coach and you're going to make your money coaching basketball. If you can do that and it doesn't distract you from coaching basketball, then do it. But if it come, if it takes you away from what you're good at, then you're making a, a big mistake. And at that point I said, you know what, I'm wasting time thinking about all this other stuff. I need to stay focused on, on being a better coach. So he got, you know, wow. basically indirectly got me into Indiana. And then even when I was back working for coach Davis, he steered me back on the right path. That's uh, when, incredible. When when did you realize you wanted to coach? Um, I grew up with basically just my mom, and and and, and so I idolized Mark Barnizer, my co high school coach, who's now at Lafayette. Jeff, he played at Auburn, played at Purdue, and so he was he was a father figure to me. I, I wanted to be like him. I you know he was in the gym every day at six a.m. He still probably plays every single day because of how much he loves the game of basketball. Mm. And so I all I ever wanted to do was be like him. So that was my goal of be a high school coach in Indiana. And when I ultimately went back to to, to IU, it was. Because Dr. Rink had said, if you want a varsity coaching job, your best chance to get one when you're young is to work for Coach Knight and obviously use that network and, and what you learn to coach basketball. So my sole intention was if I go back to Indiana to be a manager, I'm going to be able to get a, a varsity uh, position by the time I'm 25. That was my goal. Mm, wow. Let's take a little bit of a step back because you did attend Bob Knight's basketball schools when you were a kid playing <laughs> basketball. We, we texted about this a little bit. We probably were there a couple times at the same time. What is your memory of what's your memory of just what Bob Knight meant when you were a kid? And especially when you got to be that up close and personal to him at those camps. Well, he was larger than life and you didn't see him at camp except when you got there and when you left, <laughs> <laughs> but you saw the players, you saw the assistant coaches and I've got so many funny memories because I was a young guy and I was squirrely. I was, you know, if you if you knew me at that age, you probably would have said, who is that guy? What's what's his deal? But we had the, the camp in the field house. So I remember that, you know, we're in this tartan floor and, and I didn't know what I was doing. And then and back at the dorms in McNutt, which I think one of you uh, lived in McNutt. Who, who lived in McNutt? Lord, right? That was me. I was in Crone. Okay, so they used to have the phones in between the rooms. Yes, so yes. All the kids at camp would open up and play music to wake up everyone else at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. So I remember one year, uh, these guys, we were playing a prank and playing music into their room, and they took a pole out and pushed our, our uh, music player off and broke it. So I, I can remember all kinds of stories outside of basketball, other than dockage making us do a, a million push-ups. Yeah. About the IU basketball. <laughs> I, I remember being just, uh, I think I said this to you on the text, 
Joby Wright just scared the living hell out of me. He was so big and so yeah. deep, that voice of his, like it was hard to mm -hmm. understand. And you felt like if you missed something, you were going to get kicked out of the camp. You know what I also remember, Dusty? I'm wondering if you remember this at all. I remember doing it at the field house. And I remember that like signups would be at the field house. That's where you would like, like um, do not orientation, but register when you got there. And you know, those like arced, stanchions on the outside of the field house. I just remember everybody was trying to run up them as, as much as they could. And I always thought like, I'm going to be able to get all the way up. And then I would take like three steps and realize, what am I doing? I can't do this. But I just remember that visual of all these kids running up those things. I was one of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Oh yeah. I, yeah I, just, I, I, I was just ready to be like, well, that was your first taste of coach night glimpses at the beginning and end of camp. But can you talk us like you show up in Bloomington and you go to assembly hall for your, your first day, or do you remember really your first interaction with coach first meaningful one when you are now under his purview and you are working for coach Knight? No, I remember walking on the court the first day that I became a manager and, and we're all dressed in the same attire. You have a towel over your shoulder, you have a ball in one hand, you have a, your three by five note cards with flare pens in your pocket. I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're doing everything. It's there's the systematic approach to everything and just walking into the, the empty assembly hall and just being like, wow, like in, in having goosebumps of how that place made you feel. Cause I didn't go to very many games growing up. Occasionally we would find tickets here and there, but I only, uh, you know, I'd never attended maybe three games my whole life uh, mm. growing up. And so just walking on the floor, but I don't remember my first interaction with coach Knight Cause I was terrified for about two years. <laughs> <laughs> I probably was looking at the floor hoping that he didn't notice me. So, uh, you know, that, that, that I, but I don't remember my first interaction. I, I do remember once Coach Knight figured out who I was and I started to develop a little bit of a relationship with him, and, and uh, that, that was pretty cool. So a guy that we've brought up and has become a good friend of ours, Michael Lewis, was there the same years that you were, another Southern Indiana kid, obviously on the team. Uh, what do you remember about meeting Michael for the first time or just your relationship with him early on? Um, I remember I had a class with, with Mike, I think I, it was Mike, AJ and Collier. And as a freshman manager, you don't start as a manager right away. They bring in the, the freshman manager. So I was technically a sophomore, but I was a freshman manager that you don't start until basically just before the season, they want the freshmen to get acclimated to college. They go mm -hmm. through an interview process. There's, there's several steps and, and let the dust settle and see what that next class needs. So I remember I had a class with, with Collier, Lewis, and, and, and Guyton, and I remember mentioning them because I, I had an end, so I felt like I was going to be able to manage. I might be a manager. So, you know, they were nice. Mike and I probably crossed paths through AU growing up, and I remember him playing for Municipal Gardens out of Indianapolis and being a, a guy that could jump about 45 inches. You, you look at Lewis now, you wouldn't realize what he looked like growing <laughs> up. He, he had some bounce. That is shot every crazy. Time he so he, he's evolved in so many ways. <laughs> I, would, I would argue he's diva. In so many ways, <laughs> yeah, you could say that in some in some in some areas, absolutely. Yeah. So I just remember being those guys being like really good guys, and they were young freshmen trying to get used to college as well. So you know, I was good friends with Collier, AJ, and and, and Mike as well. So those those guys were great to us managers, and and uh, you know, we ended up, I mean, still friends with with uh, Mike and, and AJ, and, and God rest call your soul. Yeah, yeah. What do you remember? Um... You know, it was a tough four years, those four years, because we, you know, obviously at Indiana, you're expecting Big Ten championships first, and you're expecting deep runs into the tournament. And at that point in Coach Knight's career, 
for a variety of reasons. It just didn't happen for us uh, at that time. But there were incredible highlight moments. I mean, there were huge games that happened while you were there. Temple. That that, that Temple game was great. Temple, yeah. Michigan State, right? I'm just curious what you remember as like some highlight games or moments uh, in your time as manager. Well, early on, Andre Patterson in the preseason NIT, and I yes. didn't travel then as a freshman manager, but I remember that performance, and that was kind of the one like, wow, okay, we we could this could be a lot of fun. Um, and then and then after that, you know, in, in hindsight, I look back now, and, and and it seemed like at the time everyone was saying, what's wrong with IU with this and that. And we were finished, I think, second or third in the Big Ten every year. We were scoring 75 points a game, and we were we were getting knocked out early in the tournament, first or second round. But, you know, it, it just – the expectations and standards were so high that you felt like you were in, like, this dark era of Indiana basketball. When you look at – take a step back and look at it, I mean, those guys, they were pretty good. If you The transfers really hurt because losing a, a main – hog in the system every year is, is hard to recover but usually when Collier left Haston emerged uh you know it, but I, I think Wrecker was the one when he left because Wrecker was that unique talent where he could play guard he could play forward he was big enough he shot three so he's kind of that modern day swing man that was you know ahead of his time so I think the transfers really hurt and then uh, at the end of the day, also the, the talent level dropped a little bit. I remember up front that just we weren't quite as talented as the teams were beating us in the Big Ten, in, in my opinion. Yeah. I want to ask you about when I think about my time there and I went to every game and there were great moments, but the one that sticks out was not a great moment. It was the Illinois game when Wrecker gets fouled, Knight walks out onto the court, gets two technicals, gets thrown out of the game, and then does the the classic walk towards half court where Ted Valentine is standing. And I was in the balcony. You had a much better seat than I did. I was certain he was going to knock him out. I was certain that he was going to punch him. Do you remember that moment? And what do you remember uh, going through your head at that time? You know, any of the moments that the, the general public or people noted weren't they weren't the things that we noticed at, the, at that, at that point, coach Knight, he's walking out to check on Wrecker. Valentine assumes something else. And then the, so it, it's kind of one of those where you're just shocked. The coach Knight got kicked out. You, you know, you're probably too young to even process what really just happened and the, you know, the different dynamics that go with it. So I don't remember those things being, you know, pivotal and, and, wow. and things that I really remember or recall. I mean, at, at all. How about, uh, because I know he doesn't like it when we bring it up. How about when Michael just smash the ball off the Iowa guy's face. <laughs> I think that's one of those where it's kind of like, Hey, this is an option. If they, if they cross the line, you might have to do this. I, I don't remember the details that I just remember Lewis doing it and being like, dang, he literally just threw a heater. <laughs> uh, besides the Andre Patterson game, which I remember watching from, from home and losing my mind because it did feel like, Oh, it's Andre Patterson's coming out party player of the year here we come like this is this is it what what are some of the other moments that you remember from your time as manager um and and doesn't have to be like big games were there moments that you remember just on the bus or or traveling that that stick out to you that kind of exemplify your time as manager there no i've seen some pictures circulate one year i don't know if we're, we're playing maybe in buffalo or new york this all kind of fades together now but for whatever reason, there weren't enough seats on the NCAA plane. So a group of us managers had to fly commercial. And we literally, we fly, we land, and we dressed in khakis and button-ups. 
and we go straight to the practice court. So I'm I'm out there holding a pad, beating on people, and I didn't have time to change. And I've got on Doc Martin, probably some nice <laughs> Doc Martin boots, khaki pants. I'm sure they're cargos or whatever. Just and sweating down, through your yeah, shirt, banging up against William Gladness or whoever. So I, I seen a couple of those, and that brought back memories. Like I I remember that we didn't have time to change. We literally raced, got a cab or whatever car service, raced to the gym, so we'd have some bodies there and didn't have time to change clothes. So, you know, that, that trip was pretty, you know, we beat George Washington, I think in the first round one year, and it was like, yeah. okay, now we're back. And then the next round we get, we get smacked by, I think it was the St. John's team with uh, Bootsy Thornton and Ron Artest and those yeah, guys. That was, was a good team. Really was... good team. And, and it was a bad matchup. And, and, you know, it was one of those things, but uh, you know, AJ Guyton's big moments. I mean, he, he had so many monster games, Michigan state that, that I remember him like having, those games where you're just like, wow, you're like, you're witnessing greatness uh, as he's doing it. Uh, William Gladys, I remember all his, his left shoulder jump hooks. He was the guy I had to rebound for every night. So, uh, you know, Lynn Washington, all those guys, I think it's, it's the relationships being in the locker room, just being a part of it more than all those things. Cause as a young aspiring coach, I was taking notes about what coach Knight was saying, how to switch this, how to guard this. So I wasn't really paying attention to like the big moments or the big shots. And then as soon as the game's over, you're in the video room cutting tape. And it's kind of like now where when you're in the moment, you don't process all the stuff that's going right. on around you. Well, looking back now um, of what you were absorbing from Coach Knight, Coach Davis, we can get to that more even later when you're with him. Um, but what what are some of those things he said or instilled in in you and the players in the program that that are still come to mind when you're running a practice today or you're you're coaching a tight game and and you know like uh like obi-wan kenobi telling luke to use the force what are what are a few specific things that you still consciously carry with you that you learned from coach knight there, there's so many little sayings and and it even he'll, he would put up the 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 letters w h and o in a different you know he would scramble them and say this is obviously, you know, a lesser opponent. This isn't the best team we're going to play against, but it's with, it, he would write H-O-W. It's one more concerned with how we play than mm-hmm. even say than W-H-O, who we play. So we had all these little messages that just really made the point that we're not worried about who we're playing today. We're worried about how we play. Um, the red on red help or the white on white help, I still use to this day. When, and, and we talk about in basketball, overhelping is a, is a big problem with three-point shot. And it's quick decision-making. If you're beat, I have to make a decision. Are you really beat? Or are you back in front? Because if you get back in front and I help, we're going to give up a three. So that would simply be, we're wearing the red jersey. You're my teammate wearing a red jersey. And we have red on red help. And that's catastrophic in a game of basketball. So it should be red on blue or red on green or whatever the case, instead of red on red, if it happens to be red on red. So just little teaching points like that, that I use a lot of those now that I didn't necessarily use as an assistant coach. I feel like now as a head coach, I apply uh, about 90% more of what I learned from coach Knight that I may not even realize that was being ingrained in me at the time. Mm. Uh, We've had Scott Dolson on the show, who obviously was a former manager about, you know, what, 10 years before you or so. And he talked about, you know, how you don't really have much interaction with coach Knight until you're upperclassmen. And then sometimes you know, Scott was telling us about how he had to hook up a VCR in hotel rooms to show tape and stuff. And we often talk about Coach Knight's sense of humor, which he did have and and could be funny as hell when he wanted to be. Do you remember any funny moments that you had with him or even scary moments when you did have to deal with him directly? 
well, being a local guy, I didn't go home for the summers. I would stay and try to work camp. And then when, when Mary Kay and BJ would go on vacation, they tried to time it up with Coach Knight's fishing trips or whatnot. So when he was gone, that's when they vacationed and whatnot. So I volunteered to do work study and work in the offices during the summer work in the office. I say offices, work in the basketball office. And they're this pre-cell phones and you have the, these phones and the people are calling for coach night all day. So you're taking notes, you're taking messages, you're trying to decipher what's important, what's not, and then get him those messages. So working in the office was interesting because sometimes he would come back and it would just be him and me in the office. And at that point, he probably knew my name. And then even once he knew my name, he never called me Dusty, he called me Rusty Dusty or some form of, of that. I don't think I ever heard him just say Dusty. Come here, Rusty Dusty or some form of that. Uh, you know, so that was pretty intimidating when you drop a call, when Coach K or whoever would call, you'd accidentally drop it. And then you'd hear how you needed to figure out really quickly how to use that phone system better <laughs> So there are things like that. I, I do remember, I, I tell our GAs and managers this, that I remember I was, uh, you know, William Gladness, rest his soul as well, had a, a big time left shoulder jump hook. And you're a young guy trying to coach. I felt like I played for a great high school coach and whatnot. And so I'm in there rebounding for him tonight. So I'm going to teach Will the up and under move. You know, he's going to get a comment. The student manager going to teach Will to counter to his left shoulder jump hook. <laughs> and Coach Knight happens to walk through going from the locker room side to the 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 dungeon or whatever the, the, the room he stayed in at that time. And he looked down and he said something along the lines of Rusty Dusty, shut up and rebound. That's why we have coaches. <laughs> and you're not a coach. Something and I said, Coach, thank you. Yes, sir. And I went back to rebound and doing my job. So and that's that's something that's real. Sometimes we have young guys that, that want to really put their imprint on something. And it might even contradict what an assistant coach says or what I said. And I, I tell our guys this. I tell our staff, there's a million ways to do it. They all work and they all don't work. I can show you examples of any mm -hmm. system of offense, defense, special teams working. And I can show you examples of that system not working. And usually it comes down to everybody just being on the same page and, and being connected. So uh, I learned the hard way that William did not need me to teach a, a counter. Yeah. I also like that you censored how coach <laughs> totally. and I talked to you there. We, we clearly <laughs> know there were some other words there. Um, so you, you have this larger than life figure who is, you know, widely considered the best coach maybe ever in the history of the college basketball game, who you're learning almost from osmosis, seeing how he does things, taking notes, taking those in. But then another influence comes to town while you're a manager who becomes very important in your life. And that's coach Mike Davis, who comes yes. in as an assistant coach during your time. What do you remember about coach Davis coming in and how quickly did you build a relationship with him? Well, he had, a, he had, Antoine was a baby at that time. So he spent a lot of hours in the video room. I think that, <laughs> so we would be cutting up tape and he would always just sit down and talk to us. And then uh, Mike, Mike was in maybe in junior high. So he would, he, I, I think because I was probably the most physical, the, the, the craziest manager, he would always have me play one-on-one -on -one with Mike, Mike, oh, wow. uh, just to try to get him, toughen him up and get him to play more aggressively. So there were several things that kind of, that, that connected myself to coach Davis and, and I naturally, him being a recruiter, and I wanted to learn that side of it. And I just thought he was really good with people. And he would go recruiting trips. I'd volunteer to drive him or I'd stay back and, and work Mike Mike out while he was on recruiting trips because Tamilia would go back to Texas to see her family a lot in the summer. So there were several things that bonded Coach Davis and myself. Uh, but it was just he was someone that, someone that I hadn't been around a, a lot where he was coming from Alabama, a different type of program. And, and the rest of Coach Knight's staff usually was – 
you know, Craig Hartman was a former manager. Ron Felling had been there 20 years. Coach Dockage had played for him and worked for him. So all the assistant coaches. Yeah, Joby Wright, out of the, you know, all those guys. Yeah, we're out of the same cookie cutter mold. And so he was just different and he had a unique perspective. And then after I'd spent a lot of time with him, I just, uh, he helped me understand the, the people side of it. And I was young, naive in Southern Indiana. So he helped me in areas that, that I didn't know at the time I needed help in, but very appreciative at that time. And then throughout, I learned so much from, uh, you know, those types of things from Coach Davis, in addition to him being a, a really good basketball mind as well. Now, we all know that the managers put in more time than anybody else to the program. Uh, but I do wonder... And, and maybe it's not as um, momentous to you since you basically grew up in a suburb of Bloomington and you were there so much. But did you get a chance to just, I mean, you were in beta, so I guess the answer is yes. Just get to enjoy the IU college experience as as a student and and, and maybe what, what are some of the highlights outside of basketball for you being an IU uh, undergrad, if you will? Uh, it's blurrier than the, my background. I think, <laughs> I think back to, to that part of the question. It's a little fuzzy. Um, yeah, I, I had, I had a, I really enjoyed myself at IU and, uh, a lot of the managers did, you know, there's, I used to say it a lot. You can be really good at, at, at two of three things. You have the social side, you have the academic piece and you have basketball and your career or whatever you're, you, whether it's Kelly school business, or you, you can be really good at two of the three. You can be okay at all three. I excelled at two of those three. <laughs> <laughs> can we guess, or we just want to leave it out there. <laughs> well, I, I got off to a great start at IU because I was determined to have good grades and all that. In my first couple of years, I, I did really well. And then my last few, once I decided to go into college coaching, I changed my major to history because I felt like I could have more flexibility with my free time. Uh, the the grades came down to papers and, and a final exam. So I could manage that with with my extracurricular activities, basketball and, and social life, which yeah. basketball one, social life too. So yeah, I excelled in two. I got by in the third and uh, <laughs> I don't have a lot of, I have a few regrets, but mostly I, I really enjoyed college and worked to prepare, prepare myself for, for future opportunities. We, we Dusty, usually... Dusty, there's a really good chance we partied together and neither of us remember it at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're partying in Bloomington during that era, we definitely crossed paths. Yes, sir. Yes. So sir. we usually do this at the end, but let's get into it now. Your favorite food, favorite, um, favorite restaurant to order from or go to in Bloomington. Uh, before 4 a.m., Dagwoods. After 4 a.m., La Bamba. Yes, sir. Nice. nice. <laughs> Favorite pizza? Favorite pizza. The Pizza Express was so simple. The breadsticks, the salt. I don't know what it does, man. The it Big was, Ten the, Special. The Big, Big Ten, Ten Special. Special. Yeah, back when it was, that back when it was $10. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And when they could call it a Big Ten Special. No they question. got in trouble. They got in yeah. trouble from the Big Ten. <laughs> well, I remember when they went to 1075 or whatever, and we I think the betas revolted. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, you, there were other stops along the way, um, from, from your time in Bloomington to this, this glorious final four run you just made. And I think we should, you know, hit on a couple of the stops. Um, you'd mentioned before we started recording, um, that was, it, was it USC straight after Bloomington? Yeah, well, th there's a stop. I was going to go be a, a, G, a GA, basically, essentially a, a, a small stipend volunteer GA in Memphis. John Calipari had just gotten the job, and I was going to work at FedEx at night, and I was going to be a GA during the day. I was determined. I was fascinated with with his UMass teams, 
And I was there for maybe six or eight weeks that summer working camp. And Coach Tree Lord called and said, hey, Dusty, if you're going to go that route, we can get your, your your grad school tuition paid for here. If you want to come back and kind of not, there were no GAs, technical GAs, but serve as a GA and still be around the program and and, and, and whatnot. And I said, you know what, that, that sounds great. That'd be more economical. I don't know if I can really work from midnight to 5 a.m. every day and to be a good coach. So as and I'm processing uh, to that and, and I'm preparing to come back and I got offered the the position at USC as the video coordinator, the camp director, all that kind of stuff. So um, I, I interviewed, and this is a, a really cool story and a testament to Coach Knight because Coach Trelaw and Coach Davis had known Coach Bibby from the CBA and he sees him on the road and basically says, hey, I just had to let a guy go on my staff. I need someone that, that'll work. And they're like, oh, we got a guy that'll work. You know, if nothing else, he's going to work. And, and so that kind of went and it started going in that direction. And then I get off the plane and Coach Bibby basically said, if you can work for Coach Knight, you can work for anyone. I, those guys are machines, the robot, whatever. He said, "This unless you're the village idiot, the job is yours. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go grab lunch. We're going to go to the office. I'm going to give you a couple of projects. If you do a good job with them, then we'll enjoy tomorrow. You can go back. So he offers me the job the next day. And he says, hey, you know, when can you be back? We start school pretty soon. I said, well, I land at noon tomorrow. And I could probably be back on the road by 5 p.m. I left every, all of my belongings except my clothes in my house on First and Fest. I'm sorry, uh, Cheryl and Dr. Topolgus, who owned the house. <laughs> I left everything, left my deposit, left everything there and, and got in my car. And I drove from, um, I went to Green County to see my grandmother and, and some people. And I drove straight to Phoenix, uh, 20, I think it was about 24 straight hours straight to Phoenix. I slept in Phoenix at, at my wife's aunt and at that time, my uh, girlfriend's aunt. And I had no money. I had, I, was, I think I was char had one of those Visa uh, credit cards from the, from the student union. Yeah. And I was charging my gas and I get to, to LA and I maybe had $300 and a, and a car note and, uh, you know, drove 24 hours, slept and then drove in the next morning. Wow. That's incredible. Um, something pretty seismic for the Indiana university program happened while you were in USC and truthfully, it's something that still has reverberations that continue to today. And that's, of course, when Coach Knight was let go and it caused just a, a huge schism in the Indiana fan base. And Coach Davis took over under just awful circumstances and I, I think did the absolute best that he could anybody could have done in that situation. But what I wanted to ask you is, you're an interesting guy, Dusty, because as you know better than me, when that happened, people took sides. Um, and and there's no doubt Coach Knight was hurt by that. And the people around Coach Knight were really hurt by that. And if you stayed with Coach Davis, you were on the other side, rightly or wrongly. It was a bad time. And you're somebody who obviously went to Indiana for Coach Knight and for Indiana basketball, learned so much from him. Um, you said, obviously, instrumental in, in just preparing you for, for what came next. But you were also extremely close with Coach Davis. How did you navigate that weirdness when that was all happening at the moment? Well, my, my personality, I don't hold grudges. I, it, it's hard for me to even fathom how others hold grudges or, or takes things personal. It's just how I, I'm, I'm wired. We could get in an argument today and I would forget about it in 30 seconds. And, and tomorrow we, be, we'd be going back to being friends. That's just how I'm wired. So I was actually at USC and, and felt terrible how it went down because I idolized Coach Knight. And, and I also was really close with Pat Knight. Pat Knight really yeah. aired me as a student manager. I learned a lot from Pat. It was, you know, he had, he played there. He had coached professionally. 
And so I looked at, at Pat, I looked at Coach Davis and Coach Trelaw all as, as almost mentors where like they all had these unique experiences. And I learned so much from them. So I was at USC and I was talking to Pat and I was talking to Coach Davis and I was talking to Dan and I was talking to Coach, all the guys that I had relationships with. And then it, it kind of came to the, 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 the point where I wasn't supposed to be talking to both sides. And I mm. had already been doing it. And I didn't think anything of it because I didn't think anything had been done other than something very unfortunate that was out of everyone's control outside of, you know, something I think would be considered minor under just normal circumstances. Of course. So at that point, I was kind of labeled a Coach Davis guy. And then uh, mm. one thing led to another. And we're playing in Sacramento. when and, and I kept in close contact with Coach Davis and Dan and Coach Rilo, all those guys. And, and they're playing in Sacramento. And we are as well. And we're supposed to be the team that goes to the Final Four at USC that my second year. And, you know, so we reconnected there. And at that point, Coach Davis, uh, he made that run. And he was going to be able to create a spot on the staff. They were still a little bit shorthanded compared to most staffs. And he had told me, hey, I'm going to bring you in next year. And I'm going to create a spot for you. And at that time, my wife and I had had our youngest son. So we were trying to raise a baby in LA with what I was making and working 80 hours a week it was going to be hard. And so it made sense for us to go back and work for Coach Davis. And then they went on the run. And I actually went and, and, and just was a fly on the wall the whole time in Atlanta, was cutting up tape, was still working for USC as they made the final four runs. So that was such a memorable experience, just being on the exterior, watching what all went into that, because that was another special group that really just they they connected and they they just found their synergy and and did something special. So at that point I had a, I had a baby. I was uh I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to stay in the coaching. So it it wasn't um anything other than I supported both sides, but this was what was was logical for that point in my career. And you probably knew, right, Dane and Coverdale, uh Hornsby, I would assume those were guys that that you knew before you left Indiana. Yeah, I picked up Hornsby a million times as a manager in the mornings, and he's the most disciplined guy. There's a reason he's uh, doing what his, he's successful as he is now because he's so disciplined. But, you know, Dane and he and I are still really, really close. Cove was Cove, man. Those guys, they tried joining the beta house. And, and I always had a, a line where basketball is basketball for me, but I never hung out. Tried not to ever hang out with the players in social settings. I just wanted this life and then that life. So, mm. uh, yeah, those guys were were great dudes, man. They're in, you know, Dane was like an Indiana high school legend, even though he's from Michigan. And Cub obviously was Cub, who one year was really struggling with college basketball, and then you blink and he's all Big Ten. Uh, so you just such unique guys, but uh, yeah, so it was hard not knowing who you're even supposed to be talking to and not supposed to be talking to, but. Um, you know, I, I tried to be Switzerland because I, I I liked all the people involved, and I still have so much respect for Pat Knight to this day, and he's been great to me, and and then obviously Coach Davis did a lot for me as well, and Coach Trelor. So um, I love all those guys. I don't have any ill will towards anyone. There, it was just a rocky time. Yeah, and I'm sure. sure if that happened to me now, it would be something that, that I would feel differently about because I'm in the eye of the storm as opposed to being across the country in, in Los Angeles. Can you talk a little bit like you did about Coach Knight? What did you learn from Coach Davis? Um, obviously, very different styles. You talked about the people part of it with, with Coach Davis, but that's when he was a recruiter and an assistant coach. But now you're working for him as the head coach of the program, and I believe you were there for two years, right, with him as something I think like two years. They all were kind of run together. It was a couple yeah. years. Um, what did you, yeah, what did you I, see from him as the head coach? That was, well, he uh, just that had such him. a unique way with people when he could go into a room, everyone just naturally, like coach Knight was so imposing. And you just, you looked at him this way. When coach Davis came in, he just was so likable. You wanted 
you wanted just a visit with him. You wanted to be around him because he had, it's such an engaging smile and a sense of humor. And he was just so like and such a normal guy uh, to be in that position. It, it didn't change him. He didn't have a big ego. He didn't big time anyone. And so I just learned that, that he, he got, you know, he's basically an assistant at, uh, at Alabama, a restricted earnings, and then he's a head coach at Indiana a couple years later, and he, he was the exact same person. So that really left its mark on me. But it was just his conversations. He would share his thoughts and perspective on just about anything if you were with him. And we were on car rides, and, you know, he would play his his audio books, and he would play his sermons. And he would. And so that really left – I learned a lot just being in his presence because he was eager to learn and curious to grow – as a coach. So, and then I would ask him a million questions. If you know me, I'm going to ask a lot of, if I'm with you, I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to pick your brain. I'm, I'm going to figure out what makes you, you. And he was always a very open and honest and, and he shared a lot with me. So I think the recruiting piece, the people piece, the, and then, and, uh, you know, coach Bibby and coach Davis, had, 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 they were more NBA style coaches. So there was a lot from a basketball perspective I learned as well, but it was more just how he was as a person, how do you talk to recruits, how do you talk to high school coaches, how do you communicate with AU coaches. So those were the things as managers you don't understand because when you're calling a high school coach, it's to get stats from the night before, and it's a one-minute conversation, and then it's then it's over. So I learned a lot of the people side of the business from Coach Davis. Um, so there's a couple stops, uh, Eastern Michigan, Murray State, and um, then UAB with Coach Davis. And and then I kind of want to jump to Louisiana Tech, where I believe you start with Kerry Rupp, but then comes the the very momentous bringing together of you and Coach Mike White. How did that happen? And then how did that uh, not only uh, work relationship, but just such a, a crucial, huge personal relationship start between you and Mike White? You want me to go back to the, the previous year? Let me start with Coach White. Um, Coach White. Well, yeah, Coach White. yeah. I think I think that's what obviously. Uh, no offense to Mr. Rupp. But let's start <laughs> yeah. with Coach White. Well, Coach <laughs> Rupp, uh, we were at UAB and, and we were having success, but there were some other things that were just kind of rocky. We lost some guys to academics and just it, it wasn't super healthy at that moment. And Coach Rupp offered me a job, and Coach Rupp had a great team coming back. We ended up winning 24 games with with some bad luck, where it was it was a 30 a potential 30 win team on paper. I mean, wow. really good roster. And so we have a really good year, and then we have a, a, the wheels fall off the next year. Once again, it was you know, some things, uh, academics, some suspensions, whatever, just a, a, a gauntlet of, of miscues. And so we have a bad year, and they let him go. And at that time, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Uh, I, I was, you know, talking to division two coaches, NAI coaches, just, I knew I wanted to coach basketball, but I also knew that I have a, a strong work ethic and I have a degree. So I'm going to be able to support my family. So I'm going to find a way to support my family and stay in the game, whatever it is, I'll figure it out if it's 20 hour days, whatever the case, I wasn't super concerned. And coach white came in and he had a staff already in place. And I don't know, sometimes the staff you think you're going to hire and, and end up hiring are two completely different things, which was the case for me when I got this job, the staff I was going to hire ended up being entirely different than the staff I ended up hiring for whatever reason. So hmm. um, his staff kind of went different directions who he thought he was going to hire for uh, an array of reasons. And we just met in Houston and we were supposed to have a, a 20 minute lunch and it ended up being, we spent probably four hours that afternoon. And he said, I'll see you back in the office on Monday. And so I was working, not knowing if I was going to continue to be working or if I was going to be let go the next day. I really had no idea, knew that we connected and, and we had a lot in common. And 
we had been hustling. We needed some players that spring for Coach Rupp anyway. So we had been hustling on the recruiting trail. So I could fill up a, a board with potential recruits in about five minutes. So I think just did a lot of things. And then our players really, really helped me at La Tech, where when he talked to them, they really, they, they, they said the right things. And, and hopefully they wow. meant it hundred percent, but they said the right things. And he says to this day that left a mark and then being able to just get them acclimated. But also he felt like because I wasn't, uh, begging him or I wasn't, I, I, he said, I was just super confident that I was going to be fine in this business, whether he hired me or didn't, where it actually made him want to hire me even more mm-hmm. because he felt like he might lose me if he waited too long. So, um, and then after that, we just had a great working relationship. We hit it off as people. Our families were in the same stage. He had young kids. He had a wife uh, that he met in college and had been dating forever and then married. So there was a lot of commonalities. And then, uh, you know, we, we went through some battles and, and he had such a great perspective. It was our first year. This is my favorite Coach White story. We were picked 10th out of 10 our first year and we lose our first two or three games in the league. And we have the, the team that's picked ninth at home. We control the game. They hit a couple shots to send it to overtime. They beat us in overtime. We dropped to probably 0-4. I walk into his office and say, Coach, you don't know this league. That was our shot to get one. We might be looking down the barrel of, of an 0-18. We might be 0 for him. And he looked at me and said, hey, we've got five years. Let's keep working these guys out. Keep pouring and invested into our players. We're going to be fine. Just stay the course. And I said, holy cow, we're... I just told this man we could go 0 and 18. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, stay the course. So that's still, I, I remember that feeling to this day. And we ended up winning, I think, 10 of our last 11. We made the WAC championship game against a really good New Mexico State team. We went, ended up winning 18 games. And then the next three years, I think we won 27, 28, and 29 games with that same group that we just stayed the course and, and obviously helped develop and recruited some pieces to go around them. But that was that was kind of the pivotal moment. Of, of Coach White and, and our relationship, the, 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 how much respect I had for him at that moment. I read this stat that at Louisiana Tech, for from February 2012 till the end of the 14-15 season, you won 49 of 50 home games. Yes. That is remarkable. I mean, just absolutely remarkable. Do you remember, like, was that streak or those numbers, was that part of the story at the time, or were you just keeping your head down and going game by game? No, it, it was monumental because it was a, a big arena and we never we didn't have any fans there. And all of a sudden we have thousands of people and it becomes an environment. It becomes a show. And it, like our players here, our players there, they captivated a town, a region, a county, a parish in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. They captivated an area because of how they competed, how they played. It was a lot like, you know, the, the, there's a lot of similarities with our group, sure. with how they played together, how unselfish, how much of a team they were. And so th- that that's what I remember about that group. But as a coach, I don't remember the 49 wins, but I remember that one loss like it was yesterday. <laughs> Alfred Baden, Louisiana Lafayette, Sean Long, who also played in the in the, in the NBA. And then they had a role player uh, come, who started as a walk-on, come off the bench and make three threes. So it was a perfect storm. I, I love that you're remembering that one and not the 49. Oh, I don't remember the other 49, but I remember that one like it was yesterday. I, I want to go back to something that you said at the beginning when you were talking about the the you know everything's kind of changed as far as the perception of your program now and how recruiting changes but you did make the final four and win 34 games without recruiting at a different level you did it by recruiting the guys that you recruit how do you not get 
tantalized by, oh, now we can go up a notch, you know, uh, now we can go to the bigger AAU events, you know, and go to the main gyms and look at the main kids on those teams instead of maybe the second or third guy. Don't you have to be super careful that you don't get away from what made you a final four coach? A hundred percent. And we go to the big events and we usually look for the guy with warts with a wart or a couple right. of warts that we think we can correct. We don't look for the finished product. If the guy's really producing, we're probably in the wrong gym or we're watching the wrong guy because we're not going to be in. And even the, the coaching business, you get a, this bad perception of saying who else is on him, who else is offered. Well, I want to know because there's some schools that we can't beat. And so I want to focus on the guys that I can get. And there's no reason me wasting time recruiting against a kid that Duke or North Carolina is recruiting at this stage. So usually I want to know who I have to beat because I know who I like and who I, who, so that, that's going to be the biggest, biggest change of not going for the talent. But we say it every year when you recruit in the season versus the off season, we feel like we're recruiting two different players during the season. We want toughness and we want uh, intelligence and we want everyday approach and we want consistency and then when we go on the road in April and July, we want wingspan and hand size and jumping ability. <laughs> so it's like two. So we even say that, hey guys, when we're going out in April, let's make sure we're recruiting like it's January. Let's not forget how we feel in January and February. Mm. And so that's going to be our approach going out in April. Let's guys, let's go out and recruit like it's January fifteenth. I have to know this: where you are right now, coming off of a Final Four team, you have a point guard. Hypothetically, you have a point guard spot to fill. And let's just say in a small town near Boca Raton is a kid named Michael Lewis who has some hops, you know, not really that good of a shooter, but he's scoring. He's a high school score. Great high he school scored. Score. He scored, but he wasn't a great shooter. Would you recruit a Michael Lewis? Does he have the off-court behaviors that 19-year-old Michael Lewis had? Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> Sorry, Lou. Sorry, Lou. I don't Is no, there a pike 100%. house? Is there a pike house on the FAU campus? <laughs> hey, Michael Lewis, you average 35 a game. It's just like John L. Davis. John L. Davis for us averaged 30 mid-30s for, for 21st Century Academy. We go watch him at Peach Jam, and he's getting five, six, and seven. And he's impacting winning. He's playing the four. He's playing the two. He's playing the one. And Lewis was like that. Lewis came in as a pro score. And Coach Knight told him, if you want to play, you're going to do this and this. And he did this and this. And that's why he's still an IU legend because of that. It's true. Big, big picture looking at college basketball. Obviously, you guys were the Cinderella story. But whether it's – oh. Quick question. Before the uh, game against FDU in the second round, did you thank them, their coach, their staff for humiliating <laughs> Purdue in historic fashion? I mean, that was great. <laughs> yeah, it, it was odd. And they played before us. And so, obviously, I have so much respect for, for Coach Painter. I've spent time with him. Yeah, before. yeah, yeah. You so got to say that. No, I think, I think he's phenomenal. Right. But when you look at their roster and you look at the matchups, and we could tell, well, as soon as we saw FDU play in the first four, we said, man, Purdue might struggle a little bit with FDU just because they're so small, they're so quick, and they have nothing to lose. And so FDU has 20% three-point shooters banging in three or four threes because there's no pressure. And then you have the, the Purdue guys that are too open. They're almost out of rhythm because FDU is just saying, you know, we're not guarding those guys. 
So all of that went into it. And I knew early on, and we took our guys early to watch some of the game, but I knew when Zach Eady missed his first hook or two, I said, man, this could be where they start overthinking a little bit and, and they start feeling a little bit of pressure where if he hits those first hooks or maybe those guys make their first three or two, the game could look completely different. But we also felt like we matched up well with Purdue. It would have been really hard to beat them, but we felt like when we saw the draw, okay, if we can get past Memphis, and Memphis was like UAB in our league, Purdue could have some issues with us because of our style of play and our small ball, and we're small and quick like FDU. So uh, obviously we we knew we'd be double-digit favorites to, to beat FDU, where we'd probably been you know maybe double-digit underdogs against Purdue. But we did feel like we had a shot no matter who we played. Um, I digressed uh, that – was this just a real anomaly this year, or are you seeing a, a parody in college basketball, um, not just the traditional powers, power five, blue bloods, certain areas? Do you think we can expect to see, uh, of course, we're going to expect to see you back uh, deep in the tournament runs, but other other schools, you know, St. Pete the year before and stuff like that. Is Even this... San Diego State, I know not the same kind of thing, but San Diego State played in the championship game. Nobody expected that. No number one seeds in the final four or elite eight, right? No number one seeds made the elite eight. Well, I, I think the Cinderella thing offended our players. I, I didn't care what you called us. Whatever would get us to play well and play with an edge and all that, it doesn't matter to me. Our guys, I we encourage them to be who they are. Like they, we're all we all have certain personality traits, and, and that's what got them here. But St. Peter's was twelve and eleven or eleven and twelve in January before they made their run. Great job, they figured it out. Wonderful coaching, wonderful playing. Uh, FDU, they lost fifteen or sixteen games, right? I mean, I'm mm-hmm. trying to figure out how they lost 15 or 16 games because I thought they were good. They were yeah, really good when they played they, us. They were good against Purdue, and they were good against uh, Texas Southern. So, But you, when you look at San Diego State and us, we were almost it was almost like we were looking in the mirror. Now, they were a little bit older, but both of us had experience. We had some high school guys with some transfers, and then we both went nine deep. And as you guys know, follow college basketball. If you have a nine-man rotation, you're probably going to lose four of those to the portal after the season, because someone thinks they're going to go from 18 to 27 minutes. Right. In reality, they go someplace else and play about the same or even less at times. So it's just the nature of the business. So we had nine guys and even more than that, we had some other guys that would have played 20 minutes a game on our, on our, on our teams in the past. So you have 13 guys really sacrificing, giving for the good of the whole. And I think San Diego state was exactly the same. They're older, they're skilled, they figure out their niche to win, and they have a lot of guys who are playing less and, and shooting less than they probably deserve to. And so we we really uh, felt like that we had a lot in common with, with that group that we played against. And obviously, it comes down to a, a, a millisecond for a winner and a loser. So uh, it, it proved to be. But I, I think that is if you're going to beat these talented teams, and Duke's going to lose or Tennessee, and they had a bad injury then it's going to it's going to come from a team that's probably been together that's probably a little bit older and probably plays a little bit differently. Now San Diego State was a little bit more uh common with how they played with their pack line and not switching and, and pounding it inside, but we felt like our style of play was just different than most teams see night in night out. Yeah, and look, you beat Memphis who who has a lot of talent. You beat Tennessee. I don't care if they were dealing with an injury. A lot of talent, ranked in the top 10 almost all year. You beat Kansas State who looked like they were just on a streak that couldn't be stopped with a ton of talent on, on that team. There's, you know, 
you came into the NCAA tournament. Would you have 30 wins when the tournament started? 31, maybe? I think we finished 35 and four. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you won four yeah. in the tournament. So you started, you came into the tournament 31 and three. I mean, it, it was an incredible story all year. And you were a team that no one wanted to face because everybody knew this is a real team. Dusty, you've given us a ton of time. I, I got to tell you, man, like Ward said at the beginning, I had Hoosier fans sending me pictures from your games with them wearing Indiana gear, going to like the bar to celebrate and there for the prep, the pep rally. You, you, you have such the support of Hoosier fans from coast to coast. And, you know, we don't like rooting for any other teams, but we were rooting for the owls. We will continue to root for you unless you play Indiana and then it'll be all different, but we are just so happy for your success. It's amazing what you're doing. And, we just can't wait to keep rooting for you, man. It's super fun, and you should. I hope you do get a, a moment in this offseason to take it in because it's making the final four, man. It's what you grew up dreaming of. So uh, it's amazing. Probably, probably, May, probably May 12th, we'll be able to reflect a little more. The portal closes on May 11th. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, man. Uh, congrats on your success. Congrats on the 10-year deal. And uh, maybe Warden and I can make it down to Boca and see a game because I would love to see a game there. Well, I'm going to be in Southern California in the next couple of weeks. I might look you guys up. Come on, Do man. We'll, we'll take Please. you out. Absolutely. Joe's pressure me to come to Santa Barbara for a night. I'd rather hang out with you guys than Pastor Nick. Come, dude, come on. <laughs> tell let's him get, to come this way. Yeah, let's I'll get Pat him, down I'll... here. I know Pat's big into tiki bars. So let's find a tiki <laughs> bar for Pat. We'll do it down here. Hey, what's story on the tiki bar? The tiki bar in Marina Del Rey, uh, a, a coaching group, which was Neil O'Shea, who became the uh, general manager of the Portland Trailblazers, Scott Para who was the coach at Artesia and a group of us used to meet and Scott Perry and I coach against each other at Rice now. And Neil was the general manager at NBA. This was a small group of nobodies that used to meet at that Tiki bar in Marina Del Rey in and hang Marina? out talk ball on, on Wednesdays. Hey, you, and you know, you know who else should be in on that party when you get out here, Lawrence Frank. Oh, done. He's texting all through the run. Yeah. He was our idol as managers. Cause he was the first one to really go, uh, he, he, he went viral, as you'd say now. He went global with the manager stuff. So, yeah, he was always our idol. He is phenomenal. He is a good time and a good hang. <laughs> and uh, I also want to say this, Dusty, because you would never toot your own horn on this. But, look, it's no secret that Dane obviously had a, a bad ending at Indiana as a coach, was out of coaching this year. And looking, Dane was looking around, like, trying to figure out what's next for him. And I know that you were so open to Dane. He went down, spent time with you and your team, got to watch you this past year. Uh, and I remember him coming out of that and saying, look, I knew Dusty was a good coach, but this dude is for real. This program is for real. The way they do things, the way they hold people accountable, the way the players hold each other accountable. He was just so impressed. And I also just was impressed by you taking time out of your schedule to keep that relationship going with a guy, a Hoosier who, who needed a little, little something then. And uh, that's phenomenal. That's what being a Hoosier is all about. I know you, excuse me, you guys need to go. But one thing with Dane, we learned a lot from coach Knight and we learned from Pat and coach Davis and coach Shreeler and all that. I learned so much sitting next to Dane five, picking his brain about what he was thinking here. How would you do this? What, what were you thinking as a player? And that's sometimes as coaches, when we have the opportunity to pick someone's brain, who's, who is as intelligent of a player as Dane, it really helped my growth because if we can deal with players and help them with the nuances. And so I learned something from Dane almost every single day and then when he came down here, it's nice to have a different perspective. But I was thinking about Dane earlier. I dove into to Ray Dalio's book. 
And in the first four or five chapters, he talks about how he predicted a, a crash and, and he became a, a laughing stock and how that actually made him better long term. So Dane's going to coach for a lot of years. This will make him stronger. This will make him better. And I'm, I'm excited to see what, uh, what what steps he has next. You're a good man, Dusty May. D Rusty Dusty. You're a good man. <laughs> Thank uh, you, guys. This is awesome. That was a guest. That was a guest. Rusty Dusty. Everything you wanted and more. What a dude. What a solid human being. And special. I mean, I think you can just tell, like, this guy, super uh, charismatic. You know, you can tell, like, he did learn from Davis on the people stuff. You can see how players would want to play for him. You can see how recruits would just be taken in by his kind of warmth and, and treating everyone the same. And at the same time, I do think you could also see just this undercurrent of intensity as well. You know what I mean? Like, there, there is an undercurrent of I take this very seriously. And um, I loved it. I mean, I just – I really loved it. It's very easy for me to see – when people are completely put together because I am not. And I'm like, sure. oh, oh, that that must be what that's like, where he's just got it all under control. And, you know, look, I easily could have talked to him for another four hours and just like, how do you how do you keep your team focused? Like they won, I think, including their conference. I think they won seven straight tournament games. You know, and that's that's coming off of a season where obviously they're winning almost all of their games. So maybe that's not as unusual as one would think. But just how do you go from being this team that like, OK, you won Conference USA regular season. Now you live up to the expectations of being the favorite and winning the Conference USA tournament. OK, and now now it's house money and you're in the tournament and you win a game Oh, now you win another game. And now you're becoming a national story and you're in Madison Square Garden. And now you're going to the Final Four. And even in the Final Four game, to just go toe-to-toe -to -toe all the way down to the last half second with a great San Diego State team. Like, you just have to be so put together, not just for yourself, but for all those people around you who are looking to you and depending on you for guidance when it's it's a brand new experience for everybody and just could not admire the guy more. Yeah, I, I think of him as like a charismatic, a more charismatic Tony Bennett. There's like there's some Tony Bennett in there when you talk about a guy like really put together. Yeah. You know, like I think of Tony Bennett as that way, but handsome, but very handsome. Yeah. I mean, look, that's part of it. I mean, that is part of just his presence, you know, but, but Dusty seems to have that sense of humor and, and Southern Indiana charm. I think that, that, that permeates everything. And I'm telling you, man, from Dane Fife to Michael Lewis to Mike Roberts, everybody I've talked to has said the same thing about Dusty, just a great dude. Yeah. Great coach, but a great dude. And him signing that 10-year deal for the reasons that he did, you know, that he walked us through, speaks to the character of the man. And because he he could have easily gotten one of these big jobs, easily gotten one of them. And he's happy where he is. And I love that he says, how can I preach loyalty to these kids and then walk away from them? So uh, loved talking to him. Uh, we've been we've been talking about having him on for a while, and this seemed like the perfect time. So, follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics. Why didn't we get Dusty to say? <laughs> well, you know, Daryl was over here in my ear, and he really what was liked Daryl. Hey, Daryl, you still there? 
Yeah, man. What were you saying to Ward? Then I want to do the sometimes why again. You want to do it? Well, yeah, like last time. I thought maybe you were in Ward's ear telling him that Dusty needed to do it. No, man, that's me now. Okay, well, follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics. For the hysterics, no E, no I. But the sometimes what? That'll wrap up the worst bit in podcast history. Is he done? Are we letting Daryl go? We, we, I feel like Daryl's so stupid. It's like, uh, it's George Costanza. George, he'll come yeah. back. He'll, he'll just come show back. back up. Just show back up at work. <laughs> From the halls of assembly, you'll hear a scream and shout. I love of Indiana is manic and devout. Everything I do, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Warden Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier 